You're listening to Business Casual, a podcast about making dollars and cents Aha. in commercial real estate. All right, everybody, welcome back. This is Tim, the commercial guy, Churchwell, and joined today again with my co-host, Rob Simbiante. Hey, folks. Rob, you're down in Florida this time, right? No, I actually just got back from Florida. I was there for a conference this weekend. And I am back in my hometown. I'm in my childhood room. So if you see the lovely red, that's what it is. Okay. Um, so yeah. now we, all right. So I was wondering when you said back, and I'm like, well, let's see. You just got back from, from Italy, <laughs> from. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm in uh, North Jersey near, uh, near New York. Yep. Well, everybody, we were just discussing how there's actually a large deal going on down in Naples, Florida, $265 million retail deal is trading hands. And we're discussing how a lot of these corporations still use brokers, even though they have in-house real estate department. Many of them actually have CCIMs on staff that are trained, but they usually reach out or quite often reach out to a local agent to represent them. And Rob brought up a very good point too. He said that or they have a relationship with somebody that helped them grow to where they are. So they're, you know, it's that loyalty factor and they're going back to that age and say, hey, negotiate this deal for us and work it out. Yeah, which which makes sense uh, because if you're massive and you got there without an agent, you're probably going to continue not using an agent. And if you are able to grow with one, then that's something that a relationship wise has grown your business. And as a good person, you should be doing that. Um, and also it's probably built into the processes of your business. So and many of them still want that local person on the ground or they're rewarding somebody or they just want somebody in the industry. And I was giving an example, a friend of mine runs the retail, uh, all the retail investments for a REIT. She's a CCIM, so she's very well trained. She's got a lot of experience doing this. She oversees it nationwide, but whenever she's buying or selling a property, she she calls up, a, actually, she calls up a CCIM and asks them to represent her. I mean, it's a, it's a smart thing to do, especially it's like if you have a process that worked, there's no need to reinvent it. It works over and over and over again. And if you went to a CCIM and you have a good experience, you're going to carry on going to it. That's why having a standard of something that, you know, you can carry on going to like a CCIM um, is uh, applicable to, to most businesses, mm. regardless of what the destination is. And it's that relationship. You know, look out for each other. Um, but what I was going to say is, you hear about Rite Aid? Yes, filing bankruptcy. What did you think of that? Yeah, with the opioid lawsuits coming in, it didn't surprise me. So, how does that relate to us in commercial real estate? Well, one, there's going to be a lot of vacant properties when they close those places. Those stores are can be rather difficult to do some, you know, to divest. Not everybody needs a building that is two and a half stories tall, but mainly, you know, just first place, first floor space use. But we have seen quite a few of them convert in the past. Uh, I leased this place two years ago to a furniture company of all places to go into one. And they're doing very well with it. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, just like anything, may you live in interesting times. True. Yeah. wonder if there's a storage opportunity there. If that's depends big on enough, the loca- what's the square footage? Uh, depends on the location is the key. 
you know. Uh, you do have to do, you'd have to do a lot of different build out. Well, coincidentally, I'm, I'm actually, well, we looked into doing it with a former, I don't know if it's a Rite Aid, but it was a former convenient, it might've been a CVS or something a couple of months ago for a client. And he was looking to do just that, convert it to warehouse space and storage. I mean, there could be opportunity there to go in, you know, to convert into that, uh, Another thing that we're seeing is that somebody might want it. You don't see, I haven't seen too much of this in our market, but I've heard about it in other markets. So because the buildings are so high, so tall, yeah, it takes a lot of build out because it doesn't have the infrastructure inside, but you can actually build out the second floor as office space and the first floor is retail. Okay. So there's that potential. Same thing, yeah. with, same thing with the storage units that you have to do that. You just don't have to reinforce it quite as much. Okay. Trying to think the location of all those because office space is, you know, kind of a coin flip on where you are. Yeah. I guess and, it also depends on the market. That, and that's the key. Uh, yeah. mm. And keep in mind, they're not closing all of them. They'll just close some of them. When a company files for bankruptcy like that, it allows them basically to break their lease. So there's some leases. There are some leases they'll keep intact, but there are some stores they'll go in and close. Bankruptcy protection allows them to do that. Okay. And I believe they actually get 90 days to make a decision, so they can be behind on their payments for a while and extend that for as long as possible. As long as possible. Uh, you know, it's a lot easier to evict uh, a commercial tenant than it is a residential there. That's true. I forgot when, um, what was I reading about? When Musk took over Twitter, that's now at... <laughs> <laughs> he stopped paying rent for, I forgot how long it was, uh, as he was laying everybody off. He didn't pay rent for, I think it was three or four months. I don't remember um, that. But now being in bankrupt, bankruptcy protection affords you that ability. I mean, uh, he didn't file bankruptcy. In, so. No, no. I I think that he was just being Musk and doing some, uh, yeah. doing, <laughs> doing some Musk things. Yeah, he's doing the landlord be like, I'll pay you back later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, other than that, uh, one thing I was talking to a lot of people about this weekend, a little bit off topic from the last one, was in oh, Tell us where you were this weekend. Oh, I was at uh, this conference called Multifamily Mastery 6. There's a mentorship program that I'm a part of called Jake and Gino, and it's their kind of Super Bowl of, of real estate events for the year. So just hanging out with a lot of old friends, making a couple new ones, and just talking business and personal life stuff. But a lot I was hearing from uh, some people was insurance rates everywhere. Oh, yeah, that's not just in. But I, I didn't expect it to be 50, 60 percent everywhere. I thought it was going to be mainly coastal. Um, you know, somebody was telling me that out in uh, in Missouri, he has a 44 unit he just got and his insurance has gone up since he bought it a year and a half ago, almost 100 percent. Wow, that bad! Well, I can in see Missouri, the tor- the tor- like you get major tornadoes out there, but no, that's never, still, yeah, uh, you know, a lot of places I'm seeing thirty or forty percent, but a hundred percent is extreme. You know, I've only seen that like definitely in the coastal region. Well, California, a lot of insurers are pulling completely out of California. I know somebody that's trying to buy a house out there. You know, granted, it's kind of a wine country, but they can't get insurance on it. 
I said, nope, because of fires. Uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in those scenarios where essentially you either overpay or don't get insurance, what is a viable solution? Because the banks aren't going to lend on it. So do they just not trade? You have to be self-insured. Ah. Which means more than likely you're right. You're not going to get a loan on it unless the loan is, unless the loan's a very small percentage. Or I'm sure, I'm sure there are some lenders that'll do it if they can secure other assets against it. Okay. So, you know, oh, hey, you know, this property burnt down. And now I'm not a lender to, you know, speak fully on this, but hey, this property burnt down. Great. We're going to go take your warehouse now. Or, you know, you have to pay off the loan, period. Yeah. Talking about paying off loans uh, mm-hmm. that you just brought to the front <laughs> of my mind. Uh, what do you see happening? You know, just a little update for everybody with what we have, like a trillion dollars that's coming due, uh, something or another in the past, in the next 18 months. Yeah, that's still a big topic out there. And we're still having issues with that. Matter of fact, right before I came in here, I was on the phone with somebody a client of mine, and he's kind of freaking out. He's got two different properties. Uh, I mean, one he literally only owes about 10% on that's left on the loan. And then the other one, less than 20%. So the property is very secured, but the banks are calling both loans. Because why? They just are. Well, he he didn't go into that. But it's a local bank and having problems, having problems, having problems. You know, I mean, they've got to take this debt off their books because they're out there borrowing money at twice the rate that they've lent it at. Mm. And so he's kind of in a panic. He doesn't have that much cash on him. He's like, tell him, you know, let's sell this one and drop the price over here and do this. So we're probably going to put, yeah, we're going to do a substantial reduction on one of them and put the other one. <laughs> well, it's um, you're getting loans called on both. Yeah. But you talked about selling the other one. That one is sell a lot faster than the first one. I said, well, you can either sell it or the bank can call the note and take it. And trust me, the bank doesn't want to do that either. The bank doesn't want to take your property. They rather have the note paid off. Yeah. They are not so, in the real estate business. Can he, I'm just thinking outside the box. Can he with the one property that is more satisfying to an end buyer hire a company to operate said company or operate said property and then just refinance it and then he can go take a percentage of it that takes, company's Well, profit. the first property... And folks, we're being deliberately vague here, but the first property, it'd take too much to actually get that back operational again. Yeah. The second one, though. I think you ought to just sell it to begin with. It's still a hot, that's still a hot commodity in this market. That property would sell fast. And his loan's being called in February 1st. Being called February 1st. Yep. I mean, at least he has time that he's not. Yeah, he's got to understand putting it together, getting people to look at it, and then through the feasibility period. And I told him, if nothing else, get it listed. 
and then go to the bank and say, look, we're trying to sell this. They might give you some leeway. Yeah, that, that could work. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you don't even have to reduce much of a price. Yeah, on that one, you, you shouldn't could, have to. You shouldn't have to. Um, Hood also, I'm just thinking of like from his perspective, whatever buyer comes in on the on the second property, work it out that they owe a percentage of their something until you could pay off the other 10%. I don't know. Yeah. If it wasn't a conflict of interest, I believe on the first property, or it was not a whole lot, that somebody has an opportunity there to make a lot of cash on cash return, loaning the money to pay that note off. Exactly. In exchange for a substantial return upon sale. And then just take yeah. control of the sales process as well. Yeah. But that, I know there's a that couple people that would be interested in that. Um kind of one guy in particular, but it is a little bit out of his valley work. That might so. be interested. The only thing is though is I hate intertwining my personal finances like that with the clients. Yeah. You know, it creates well one, just what's that? Maybe even a potential conflict. So if I'm doing a market analysis, say, hey, you need to lower the price, then am I doing it because I need my money back? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It just so I'm always very hesitant to do that, but um it's it's interesting, but that's that's a very close at home, you know, to us example of what's going on out there in the lending market right now, and this is happening even on a much larger scale. You know, this is happening on very large deals, you know, fifty million dollars plus, hundred million dollar deals, loans are being called. Yeah, I I have a theory that for those larger deals, we're not really going to see much happen before election season. In which the banks are going to work with them or be willing to work with them more so that when it comes to time to elect somebody, it's not seeing that everyone's belly up and business is really rough in real estate. They could say that things are going well and they're managing hard times. But the problem is, though, the government would have to release funds for the banks to do. The banks, you know, here's the money you're borrowing. Here's the money you Here's the loan processor you got coming in, here's your callable notes. They don't have a choice. That's a regulatory issue and also a financial stress test issue. It's not like government stepping in and go, oh, you can relax a little bit. I'm like, yeah, that <laughs> I still got to make the difference on the spread here. If I'm not bringing in the cash to cover what it costs me to brawl, there's a problem. Well, what's the flip side for the bank? They wind up taking the keys for all these places. No one's going to be able to buy them back from the bank for a number that would make sense to them, right? Because the rates won't work. Well, keep in mind, when they lend the money, they lent the majority of these properties, they lent with a with equity, and the, the buyer had to put equity into it. Yeah. So if I lent you a property at 70% of its value, you've been paying it off for a cu- for several years. So let's say it's down to 65% right now. 
if I have to go out and sell that now, I'll caveat this in a minute. If, but if I have to go out and sell that, it's not going to crush me to sell a million dollar property for eight hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And so, but- so there, so the banks can make that forced decision that a lot of sellers don't want to don't want to do. That's why we had so many properties pulled off the market when interest rates went up. You know, the sellers refused to adjust their pricing to accommodate for the higher rates. So the cap rates, they wouldn't adjust. You know, keep in mind, people, if cap rates go up, prices come down. It's an inverse relationship. It's supposed to happen. <laughs> supposed to happen. Uh, but sellers haven't really been. been and that's why we saw so many properties pulled off the market. And just things aren't trading um, as much as they were. Yeah. Well, I, you, know, you had that with the banks also stopping investment lending. So, yeah, lending dried up a lot or became a lot more stringent. The caveat I wanted, this reminds me, the caveat that I wanted to place on that, I believe that the banks have to sell within a certain percentage of the appraisal, however. So that okay. example I gave earlier, a million dollars selling it for 800000 mm-hmm. I don't know if that's in the percentage or not. It might be within 10% of the appraisal value for all I know. Okay. So check with your lender, folks. Good old lending nowadays. I know a few folks that have been getting uh, decent lending and just everyone's kind of pissed off about insurance. (laughs) Understandably so. With insurance. Um, That changes your cash flow numbers. You got to account for that. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, some some deals cash flow, some deals don't. Kind of just how it is right now. Why? Diversify your portfolio. If you uh, you want super high cash flow and you're not seeing it, and there's other things that you can go find elsewhere that would be able to get you said numbers. Yeah. You can diversify your risk and potentially increase the return of your portfolio. Keep that in mind. Yes, sir. And folks, I believe that we've said this before, but when we talk about diversification on your financial wealth, we're not just talking about real estate, diversifying to different sectors. You should also have money in the market. You should have money in retirement accounts. Though you can buy real estate in retirement accounts too. That's a whole separate session. And you should have money and you should have cash put aside. And you're safe money. So diversification is across the board when it comes to the your financial well being. Yeah, that's true. And like other things that you could also be getting into at the same time, if you know that you're looking for cash flow, maybe going off in a completely different direction, maybe finding a business that's not operating well. If you're a business uh, person, you know operations very well, that could be a way for you to increase your cash flow, which you then can move into your more secure real estate assets that may bring you less cash flow. However, you're going to see massive appreciations over time. Yeah. Um, and everything's a factor of risk as well. So if you're a little uncertain, you might move from more, higher cash flow, but a lot more risk to something that's less risk. Now it's less cash flow, but you're taking less risk of, for instance, a bankruptcy write-off or something that's very economically sensitive. Exactly. And then also some things you'll make more cash flow because you're putting in way more time into them. You're, you're trading your time uh, managing operations for, I know I have a friend who's buying a sauna company. That's uh, some old gentleman's been operating for a while, has no books, has no nothing, and he's going to mm-hmm. you know, be operating that. That's going to take 
a decent amount of time out of his, uh, you know, out of his uh, time wallet for the next uh, few months, few years, maybe. But we'll then have a uh, massive play down the road if it does become, you know, operationally efficient. All right, folks, we're going to draw this one to an end now. Uh, thanks for joining us. Our next session. Oh, let's give them a little carry away. Inverse relationship on cap rates. So if cap rates go up, which in rising interest rates, you have to have that, then prices come down. Now, conversely, that's true too. So cap rates go down, prices come up. Inverse relationship. That's our takeaway for today, or one of it anyhow. And on that note, we're going to end this and join us for our next session. We kind of go into a little bit on supply versus demand in the multifamily market. Also, I want to bring up, I believe it's Fannie Mae just launched a new product for small investors too, for single family investors. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm Tim, the commercial guy, and I'm here with Rob Sim Valentino Simbiante. Did I say that <laughs> right? Italian world traveler. Yeah, that actually That's pretty right. good. All right. All right, folks. See you next time. The Business Casual Podcast is recorded in the Hurrah Studio and edited by Mark Harlan. Thank you.